0: band can mean only one thing. Well, I suppose it can mean more than one thing, but in this case it means it's time once again for UConn 360. That's the world's only podcast that covers the University of Connecticut from every conceivable angle. My name is Tom Breen. I'm your facilitator of sorts and joining me on a beautiful day in the Lakeside Tower in Storrs, (laughs) Connecticut are my colleagues Julie Bartuka joining us. Hello. Back again.
1: Back again.
2: Ken Best. I am here behind the board in our uh, newly renovated room. Well, it's not renovated so much as we got a new table, which is huge. <laughs>
0: it's true. There's a big difference for us. You can't see it because this is not a visual podcast in any way, but trust us. this it's, is
1: It's huge. It's a lot better. Very exciting stuff. Welcome
0: back, Julie. Hey, thanks. How was your trip?
1: It was wonderful. Good. Amazing.
0: Sad to be back with us. No. Yeah. No. Whatever. We have some exciting news. I think we have exciting news. Julie, What? do we have exciting news? <laughs> we
1: have some. Some cool news. All right. The first thing is that 48 physicians from specialties across Yukon Health were named among the top doctors in the state in Connecticut Magazine's Best Doctors issue, which came out this month. Our own Dr. Omar Ibrahim, who's the director of Thoracic Oncology and Interventional Pulmonology, is featured on the cover along with a feature on the new robotic tool he uses to diagnose lung cancer early, which you may have seen in UConn Health Journal as well. Visit UConn today for the full list of top doctors broken out by specialty so you can see what UConn Health doctors you want to check out. And I also just wanted to mention this study that shows that laughter really may be the best medicine. Researchers Naren Ramirez-Esparza, who's an associate professor in the Department of Psychological Sciences, and Adrian Garcia-Sierra from the Department of Speech, Language, and Hearing Sciences, published in the journal PLOS One that high-quality conversations and laughter may contribute to longer life expectancy in Latinx populations in the United States. They found that the Latina mothers they followed laughed more and had higher quality conversations than their white counterparts, which could be in part because the Latina mothers tended to live closer to their families. So have deep conversations and laugh a lot because it's good for your well-being.
0: This justifies my Patch Adams fandom, I feel like. (laughs) What What a movie. Ken. Classic. Ken, what's going on with you?
2: We have news from the world of sports. Two of our women's basketball players have have made inroads. Most recently, the announcement just this morning that Swin Cash has been named a senior front office person for the New Orleans Pelicans in the NBA. Swin is a veteran of the WNBA. She won championships in the WNBA and, of course, at UConn and gold medals as well. So this is part of the move of having more women involved in men's sports at very high levels. Sue Bird, just earlier this year, was named by the Denver Nuggets to a front office position. Mm. Uh, Swin, actually, when she was in college, Coach Auriemma thought uh, she's got a plan because she was a business major and she Mm -hmm. started her own business, her own foundation, just as she got out of school and has been very successful in all of those. She's been doing broadcasting. Sue has been doing broadcasting as well. And so now we have two of our more prominent alumni uh, making inroads in another way. Congratulations
1: to them.
0: Well, uh, the podcast is dropping on Wednesday, June 12th. Mm-hmm. If you happen to be on campus on Thursday, June 13th, and see people who appear to be evacuees from a nuclear disaster, don't be alarmed. It's Not uh, an episode of HBO's Chernobyl.
1: Oh, no. You know,
0: like how I just threw in that topical reference? <laughs>
1: yes, good job.
0: We are conducting a federally mandated exercise drill oh. as we are an evacuation committee in the event of a nuclear accident at the Millstone Plant.
1: Thank you for the warning. We
0: have to do this every seven years. Okay. Uh, the town of Mansfield is actually the host community. But we are part of that host community. The Greer Field House has been set aside as the reception area for people from the town of Ledyard, who hmm. would be fleeing, evacuating—maybe not kind fleeing. Of a
1: far drive. No. Yeah.
0: Well, I mean, you want to get away, right? Yeah.
1: You do you want to be
2: a distance? From some people, the, from some of the other ones, are like East
0: Hartford, is one. <laughs> okay. I'll be participating. I offered to play a victim. <laughs> And I said I could be really unreasonable and like have demands, like I like have a parakeet or something. <laughs> and they said, no. We
1: don't need that. Why
0: don't you just be the PIO, which is what you would be what doing. What you are. <laughs> I, don't, I feel like they're trying to pigeonhole me. Maybe I won't be a PIO. Maybe no. I'll be like a black marketeer.
1: Nobody puts baby in the corner. Yeah,
0: selling like <laughs> water bottles to people at 1,000% markup. Of course. <laughs> Maybe I'll be a spiv.
2: This is coincidental to the new Jim Jarmusch movie, on Zombies. This, oh, that I movie know, looks
1: really good. It does
0: look good. Anyway, anyway, so yeah, so if you're on campus alarmed. and you see okay. people, they're gonna have like vests that say like victim or evacuee. They're not actually evacuees.
1: Well, that's good to know.
2: Yeah, thank you. Big question is, will we still be able to get lunch?
0: Yeah, as long as you don't try to get lunch at the Greer Fieldhouse. <laughs> um,
1: From people like Tom selling it. Yeah, at for me, that's only a huge markup. Yeah.
0: Hey, magic of the market. Oh All right. My gosh. Why don't we get right into Let's get into it? Please. Our stories, Julie, since you've hey. been away. Why don't we lead off with you?
1: Sounds good. Kari Adamson's is an associate professor in human development and family studies, and the co-author of the fifth edition of Family Theories and Introduction, which is a foundational textbook for family studies and family sociology. That presents a variety of theoretical frameworks through which to view families, based on the latest theories. Basically, they talk about different ways to look at the family. Adamson says she's a true data nerd who found her calling in research, but also loves teaching about her research in areas including parenting, particularly fathering, and its impacts on child development. She's also involved in helping create and strengthen initiatives to help parents, such as the Dad and Me Obesity Prevention Program and the ACT Raising Safe Kids Program, which helps parents protect their kids from the impact of violence on their development. She also works with state agencies to provide trainings, such as helping newly divorced couples share parenting duties. So let's take a listen to my conversation with Kari. So, you study parenting, I do, particularly fathering, and also the way mental and physical health is affected by family roles. Yes, So can you tell me just about some of your recent research and findings in this area?
3: Most of the recent research that I've been doing, I'm very interested in fathers and mothers and how they negotiate who's going to do what as parents. We sort of assume going into parenting that our partner is on the same page as us, and of course, has the same goals and values and ideals. And, don't really talk about it most of the time. And so the child arrives and surprise, we're not on the same page. And so we see a fair amount of parents that the satisfaction in their relationship declines right Mm -hmm. after the birth of the first baby. And, but there's a lot of variability and part of my work is looking at is that one of the reasons that if we can help better prepare people for being parents and to negotiate what they're going to do as a couple and as parents and co-parents that seems to help so that's been one of them and then some of the other stuff I've looked at is the influence of non-residential fathers with their children their relationships the ways they stay involved and then most recently looking at father influences on childhood obesity
1: oh wow do you work with the Rudd center at all with that I
3: have and also a colleague of mine who just moved to the University of Florida was over nutrition. So, cool. looking at combining kind of nutrition education with parent education programs for dads of low income preschoolers okay. and helping them involve their kids in cooking and nutritious eating and healthy activity.
1: Have you found that there is a correlation there between others who live outside of the home and obesity?
3: Yeah, for both residential and non residential dads, there's a pretty strong association between their own obesity and habits and their children's. And in some situations, even even more so than the moms, okay, which interesting. is interesting yeah. because people think of mom as being the primary caregiver and right. cool. food preparer and shopper and all of those things. But there seems to be some research coming out that dads have a unique impact on that. Hmm. So
1: very interesting. So I'm curious about your thoughts as a parenting expert on these things that we hear about a lot, like helicopter parenting and lawnmower <laughs> parenting, which is right. the new uh, term, which right. kind of that recent. College admission scandal reminds me of that, um,
3: right, right. clearing
1: out the obstacles. Is this going to mess up our kids, this wave of <laughs> maybe overinvolved
3: parents? It's not helpful. Um, you know, one of the things that we know about child development is that one of the early, early tasks, toddler and preschool, is learning to cope with failure and learning emotional resilience and learning coping strategies And we don't allow our children to learn those, especially when people kind of do everything for their kids or try and just keep all the burdens out of the way. We don't want our kids to struggle. That's natural. But – it's sort of like our immune systems, a certain amount of, you know, being exposed to bacteria is good for our immune systems, a certain amount of adversity is good for our coping skills. And it's much easier to learn when you're three <laughs> than when you're 25 or 45. A lot of the research is is correlational, it's not longitudinal, so it's hard to kind of say which came first, the chicken or the egg, mm-hmm. you know, was it the helicopter parent, or was it a child who needed maybe a little more attention. But not letting your kids try and fail and overcome that on their own is not generally helpful. It, it keeps them from developing a lot of skills that will really be useful later in life.
1: And you co-authored the latest edition of a textbook that I assume is used pretty widely in your field, uh, Family <laughs> Theories and Introduction. So I'm wondering, how are these theories and frameworks about what a family is? So it goes through a bunch of different kind of frameworks for looking at families. So how are these theories and frameworks changing today about how families function and with all these new kind of modern families that we hear about? How has that evolved?
3: it's evolved quite a bit. Our theories are products of our time and products of the way we're thinking about things at any given point in time. And any, any theory is a lens. You know, there's no kind of master theory that, okay, this is it. We've figured out how to understand families and everybody just use this. That's not going to happen. And it's not necessarily even the goal. So it's having kind of a rich diversity of different approaches and different lenses to look at families with in different circumstances and seeing which fits and helps explain things the best. And those have definitely evolved over time. Back in the 50s, Uh, We saw a great deal of what we called structural functionalism, which is we have fathers and we have mothers and men do this and women do this. And that's what makes the world go round. you know, that we need to be specialists and that men and women need to be complementary to one another. And that's the best way for families to function is with that structure and each specializing in their own functions. We've moved away from that. And, you know, we've talked about that there are a lot of different roles and more or less, families can take on and parents can take on and children can take on a number of different roles and different ways of relating to one another. And lots of them can be successful and lots of them can be problematic. And so just having this sort of singular view is definitely has moved out of phase to much more pluralistic and diverse and understanding new ways of looking at individuals and families and the ways that they interact.
1: Has the definition of family changed?
3: Absolutely. I think the definition of it would depend on who you ask. That's something that's been a hot topic of discussion, certainly in family sciences over the years, of exactly what is a family or the family. One of our prominent journals used to be called Journal of Marriage and The Family. Hmm. They changed it to just be family, to understand that there's more than one type And so it really depends on kind of what you're looking at. Are you looking at a household and who lives in a particular Mm -hmm. residence? Are you looking at anyone who has interactions with one another? Are you looking at kind of psychological closeness or physical presence? All of these are different ways of thinking about it and may have different answers as to kind of who's in or who's out at any given time for any given family.
1: It's really interesting that just taking out the word the – makes that much it of makes a, difference. a statement but it right? really does it yeah that's really interesting you know
3: I've, I've had students pretty much every semester will ask me so so what's the best kind of family right like what's best for kids and I said best for kids is to have at least one caring competent adult who cares for them and then after that the more of those we can have typically the better mm-hmm. you know and what roles they serve and what biological relationship they have. Those sort of take a secondary role to if they're engaging in positive interactions and doing good things with kids, then the more we can have people doing that. It's generally better for kids.
1: I'm always interested in how a person's background informs what they do. So, How did you come <laughs> to study this area?
3: I've always been a bit of an underdog champion <laughs> and when I was an undergraduate I did an honors thesis. I was very interested in child abuse prevention and had actually done some work with foster parents and with the child abuse neglect system in Washington DC. And so I did an honors project on child abuse prevention and at that time one of the local agencies wanted wanted me to do like a lit review, basically, because they had just sort of realized all their stuff targeted mothers. And nobody had really looked at whether fathers had a role in child abuse prevention, which, of course, we know now is huge. So they wanted me to take a look at the literature and see: do we know anything about these dads? Like, would it be worth trying to involve them in our child abuse efforts? And the answer was yes. And so I kind of held on to that. And when I went back to graduate school, I did a lot of reading and looked around. And I said, no, this is still kind of where I'm at. I'm interested in what dads do. We know tons about moms as parents and almost nothing about fathers, and there's a lot of questions to be answered, so somebody's got to answer them. I guess I'll start.
1: (laughs) Students who are interested in studying with Adamson's can look out for HDFS 1060, Close Relationships Across the Lifespan, and HDFS 3261, Men and Masculinities, which she teaches most semesters. And next spring, she'll also be teaching HDFS 3311, Parenthood and Parenting.
0: Very nice. Thanks. Good story.
1: Yeah, it was a good, good, you know, broad... Conversation about something that we all think about sometimes.
2: That's very true. Ken, what do you have for us? We have a radio story.
1: Ooh. Ooh. Very meta. meta. yeah. yeah. Very meta. Inception.
2: Fitchburg State University historian Catherine Rye Jewell is from Vermont and she studies political and cultural history. But she's been here for the past year as a visiting scholar at the Yukon Humanities Institute. Uh, she spent the year researching a book with the working title Live from the Underground, College Radio and the Culture Wars, which is about the effect of changes in FCC licensing guidelines on college radio and the culture toward the end of the 20th century. There's all kinds of rules about how you're supposed to do things on the radio and college radio at the left end. Of the dial where all the nonprofits are, have certain rules that need to be followed. But also, college radio has been a place where new music has often come from mm-hmm. and interesting discussions take place that generally you don't hear on a regular commercial radio. Her interest in college radio dates from her days as an undergraduate at Vanderbilt University in Nashville. Music City, where she worked on the station WRVU, which is a university station, just before it was sold to a national public radio affiliate and changed its format to classical. She says radio involves many different disciplines, such as communications, broadcasting, and music, but also encapsulates public affairs, news from minority or recently immigrated ethnic groups, and how those cultures can remain visible. She really wants to examine today's media-saturated era and how we have conversations about what American culture is and how it gets to be represented. Uh, she says these are core humanities questions, which is why she decided to come to the Humanities Institute and have all the resources here. We discussed the radio and music industries from the classic rock era in the 1960s through the start of MTV in the early 1980s, which is when she starts looking at how all of this affected changes in college radio.
4: So I start the project in looking at when stations college stations begin to go FM in the 1960s and the way that through the 1970s they fill in niches in within radio culture and FM radio in particular through the 1970s covering music that doesn't really get airplay. So in some ways the MTV story is a continuation of what had been going on in the commercial music industry for a decade, which was about consolidation. It was about narrowing rosters of stars and the fragmentation of radio in particular.
2: It it was kind of as you say, a continuation because in the 1960s, the industry still was geared to singles. Top 40 radio was the dominant format, although it started to split. But album-oriented radio as FM came in because of the better sound quality. And then as you describe it, and and as progressive stations still today, uh, WFUV in New York, the Fordham University station, taking the deep cuts on the the backside of, of the single or going deep into the album for tracks that not everybody listened to, but a lot of people did.
4: Yeah, and I'm really looking at where that reputation for progressive radio comes from. And and in some ways college radio, it doesn't it seems natural that it would come out of the freeform movement of the nineteen sixties, which, you know, pioneered what will become album oriented rock radio in the 1970s and, and develop as a, a format that stations would adopt and have consultants help them tone their playlists and their format. But instead, what I find is that that culture of college radio that really emerges in the early 1980s is a product of, of much larger forces. First, you know, developments within musical culture, the rise of punk, um, and then this kind of spinning out into post-punk and developments in, in soul and funk and, you know, the rise of hip-hop as well all of those were involved in the the maturation of that idea of college radios force within the music industry but regulation plays a huge role in it as well and the politics of the institutions themselves and you know how institutions of higher education saw the role of their radio stations you know it served as a laboratory for students who wanted to go into broadcasting, but it was also a tool of public relations. And they really wanted their station to have a professional sound for the community and to serve communities that didn't have a voice on the airwaves necessarily, you know, in commercial FM or AM. And institutions valued that as a kind of a a role that educational institutions could play. And then when it came to the FCC, there's a rule change in 1978 that eliminated the small 10 watt Class D stations, which is
2: what many stations were.
4: It would, you know, it basically lowered the barrier to entry or the bar to entry um, in starting in the 60s when the FM airways were pretty underpopulated. Then along comes the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and the rise of National Public Radio, and they have a preference for much higher wattage stations that could reach more people on a single signal. And a lot of times, these 10-watt stations stood in the way of that larger coverage area. So what college stations had to do is upgrade. And then when they upgraded, they reached more people, which meant that it brought greater scrutiny on what they were doing. And so it led to greater professionalization. And then you get this kind of pushback from students and staffers who say, well, we don't want to just replicate what's on commercial FM. That's not what we're interested in. We're an educational station. We have an obligation as a non-commercial educational station to serve disadvantaged groups. And that's really the space that they were able to carve out for themselves to play this kind of cutting edge music that you couldn't find and that wasn't wasn't really commercially viable, right? Advertisers they wouldn't want sort of those more challenging sounds to be supporting their advertisements.
2: WHUS was one of the very first radio stations in the state of Connecticut. Uh, many years ago, it evolved as a college station. Changes going on right now, block programming that you referenced and in, in some of the earlier uh, changes that that you noted comes and goes here, and it's still community-based. And the kind of sounds that you don't hear generally on radio stations, we have a polka show, we've got jazz shows, we've got bluegrass shows, folk shows. Uh, not a lot of those shows exist anywhere in most markets.
4: It's interesting you mentioned the polka show, because when I was going through the archives of the WHUS here at UConn, I noticed that there was a moment in the early 90s when they curtailed the hours of the polka show on Sunday mornings. And there's just a huge folder of letters from community members you know, writing in and and saying, you know, this show means so much to us. This is when we, you know, eat pancakes in the morning and, and Sunday mornings and listen to this show. And it's this, it's this family time. And, and it means so much to us. And when I talk about the diversity of college radio, this is really what I mean, that it's not just serving, you know, this entertainment function, but it's serving this cultural function for groups that otherwise wouldn't have that kind of communal media moment when people know that others with the same cultural traditions are having the same experience even if it's in their private homes it kind of connects them across across space and through this community and WHUS is an interesting example because it does reach so widely geographically at night sometimes when i was a student in high school it was one of the stations that i could pick up all the way in vermont and it had this wide geographical reach, which then at the same time drew some scrutiny as to what its function was, what its mission was, that it wasn't just necessarily to serve the students who wanted to go on into radio or who wanted to you know, maybe find their voice on the airwaves, but that it was for the community and that it was you know, in some ways the oral face or oral sound of the University of Connecticut reaching into these private spaces and you know that those kind of institutional pressures apply to so many different stations and and limit what it what they're able to do. But you know when it comes to students that there is still that desire to find their voice, one of the strongest examples I have of that is uh, Chuck D at Adelphi University at WBAU. He and the other members of Public Enemy were all members of the radio station in the early 1980s as their group was starting to come together. And he credits his time as a DJ at WBAU with him finding his voice as an artist, as an activist. And, you know, and now he he laments that, that we're so drowned out by all of these different media sources that, you know, people wonder if that is still possible, but at the same time, if you look at these the politics of these stations historically, there has always been that push and pull between the station serving the community, the station serving the institution, versus the station serving students in their quest for self-expression.
0: Well, that was great. And, you know, speaking of college radio, I think – I've realized my dream in life is to host a pro wrestling talk show on WHUS in the summertime. Do it. Yeah.
1: You and Ken can be back to back.
0: I just like the (laughs) idea of like a dairy farmer, like getting up in the morning for work, and then for some reason I'm on the air talking about masked wrestlers in Mexico.
1: It'd be great. If you'd asked the 20 year old, they they would probably turn the dial.
2: Well,
0: (laughs) wait (laughs) till they hear my opinions.
2: You would have to get the clearance from the from the staff to get that on the air but I know see well that's why it's I a dream I know people over
0: there that's why it's a dream well that was a very good piece very interesting stuff it's time to turn to the past time to visit uh, one of our yes, favorite places I've missed it Tom's history corner
1: Italy which, pales in comparison um to
0: there's a special legislative record. session and i believe they're going to take up the name change as part of it's going to be tolls and the name of the segment yep so fingers huge crossed huge
1: issues facing our who do we have to speak to about today. that do we
2: have to lobby for we, that we or do. against it well, we
0: have, it? have lobbyists. Podcasts, <laughs> we do you know. we have our own lobbyists
1: yeah we pay out of our own pockets
0: I want to start with a listener question. This is from Jesse Rifkin, That's a UConn right. graduate, mm-hmm. who um, is a podcast listener, so thank you for that. Also, you've probably seen Jesse's byline in the Yukon uh, magazine, has a regular contributor to that. He writes, and this is an interesting question I had not thought of until he wrote in. Apparently, this is something that has bedeviled Jesse since <laughs> undergraduate days. He writes, why is... Wilbur Cross, the only building on campus that is referred to by both its names. Every other building, while officially named the first and last name of someone, is always colloquially called Gamble Pavilion, Buckley Hall, Jorgensen Theater. It's actually Jorgensen Center for Performing Arts, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But yet, it's always the Wilbur Cross building, never Cross or the Cross or the Cross building. Why?
1: Sometimes Wilbur.
0: So I thought but about that's
1: it. That's
2: also weird. We don't want to get getting confused with the Parkway.
0: I thought about it, and I it is interesting. But uh, I think Homer Babbage Library yeah. is an exception. Be- people say Homer Babbage all the time. Homer. Sometimes they say Babbage Library, but they also say Homer. Very rare. Yeah. Very rare. You do hear Homer Babbage Library a lot. But it is striking that we don't have, like no one says Harry Gample. Yeah. Or Hugh Greer.
1: Why is that?
0: I don't know. Oh. Interestingly, You're I- You're not going to tell us? I mean, I, you know, there's no like- <laughs> I know. It's I, just a thing. It's not, I, not like a
2: there's a happens. style book- that we have to follow
0: for No, but it's, the it is
1: funny. Like, why? Just why, Yeah, one. I can't think
0: of, other than Homer it has a nice Babbage, ring to it. I can't think of any other building that people regularly refer to with both names. Yeah. Interestingly, Wilbur Cross was not named Wilbur Cross when it was built. Right. It had no name. It was 1939. It was just the library. Mm-hmm. And then in 1942, it was named for former governor Wilbur Cross, mm-hmm. who had been in charge of the state at the time the money for the new <laughs> buildings was appropriate. Also, he was a local from just up the road so during world war ii they had a very solemn like a low i don't want to say solemn low-key ceremony uh, for naming both wilbur cross manchester hall maybe a couple others and that's when they chiseled his name into the front of the building
1: oh cool is manchester hall just named for the town or is it named for a person just named
0: for a person really yeah who harry manchester (laughs) you just made that up i don't know i think it's actually named for a person though
1: yeah Interesting.
0: And it's interesting you go back to the Daily Campus from the forties and they just they still call it the library because if you were a student, that's what you called it. The mm-hmm. name didn't catch on until after the war when hmm. people started calling it Wilbur Cross. Anyway, that's what I found out. But speaking of names, what's in a name? A rose by any other name would smell as sweet. That's a Shakespeare quote.
1: That is. Good job. Very impressed by you.
0: What is the name of UConn's first president?
1: name of you? I don't
0: know. I think most people would say Benjamin Franklin Coons. Well, actually, most people would say I don't know. But...
1: <laughs> if you did know.
0: The, if you did know, you'd probably say Benjamin Franklin Coons, mm-hmm. who we know, we've talked about here before. He was the uh, Oberlin grad and Civil War veteran. Yes, he was cool. Uh, yes, who who bucked the state and said, we're gonna have women here. We're gonna educate women. Damn Go. your laws. Go
1: Benjamin Franklin Coons. Mm. He was actually
0: during the war, he was held in a, apparently a very brutal Confederate uh, prison camp. Wow. But is that the right answer?
1: I guess not.
0: No. I'm guessing it's well, not. Well, sort of. Huh? <laughs> that's that's why we adjudicate these questions on the History Corner. <laughs> if you go to the Yukon website where we list all the presidents, and so our incoming president, Tom Katsulaas, he's going to be the 16th president. Yes. But he'll be the 17th person featured on that website.
1: How, Tom, how? <laughs> Tell me why.
0: <laughs> There's a name uh, and a picture on the website of someone named Solomon Meade. Hmm. And Solomon Mead was a New Haven farmer and gardener mm-hmm. who in 1881 was appointed the first principal
1: Principal of
0: Store's Agricultural School. He was also the professor of agriculture. Uh, Dr. H.P. Armsby was the chemistry professor and Benjamin Franklin Coons was the professor of natural history. They were three faculty members wow. in 1881. It's
1: come a long way, baby.
0: And uh, they presided over a daily regime that saw students rising at 6.30 a.m., eating breakfast at 7, followed immediately by prayers. They had class from 8 a.m. until noon. They had lunch from 12.15 to 2 p.m., which is actually pretty generous. They had manual labor between 2 and 5 p.m.
1: Was that when they did the rocks?
0: That's when they did the rocks.
2: Was that scheduled as manual labor? Schedule
0: Schedules manual labor. So there was no other fancy name? No, manual labor.
1: We'd be in a lot better shape as a society.
0: Dinner at 6 p.m., studying between 7 and 9, and lights out at 9 wow this is still the regime that prevails yep, at you come exactly. today exactly
1: that's exactly the manual what labor is, is like very here. popular
0: <laughs> so anyway uh solomon Mead did not last very long he was here because for bu- of
1: all the manual labor <laughs> 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 it wasn't very popular he
0: was here for about a year <laughs> okay. uh and then there's not much about him i couldn't find all that much information he apparently invented something called the conical plow not oh, comical
1: conical
0: conical plow
1: Cool. We've been innovative since 1881.
0: His house in New Haven is still standing, although it's been significantly renovated and added on to. Okay. So he was the first leader of the institution, was followed, actually, by Dr. H.P. Armsby as interim principal. Benjamin Coons was appointed principal in 1883. Did
1: they change his title to president, or was he... Ten years
0: later, when Storrs Agricultural School became Storrs Agricultural College.
1: College. Cool. All right. So
0: if you go to the website, you'll see Solomon Mead with an asterisk next to his name, and... Hopefully, by the time you hear this, we will have corrected the spelling of his last name, which Uh-oh. was inaccurate. Great. We put an E on the end of his name, which he mm. did not have.
1: All right. That's cool.
0: So we've learned a lot today. So much. Learned about the conical plow.
1: We didn't tell me anything about what that is. My, my life's painted.
0: dreams to host a talk show on WHUS.
1: Called the conical plow.
0: <laughs> Called the conical plow. It'll mostly be about Solomon Mead. It's going to be a very short show. Um, I think
1: we can make that happen. We, probably we can, can yeah. make your dreams come true.
0: <laughs> if only 20-year-old me could hear what my dreams are at this point in my life.
2: And run uh, screaming from the room.
0: Yeah. yeah, Or would make different choices, I yeah. think. Um, we can only hope. We can only hope. <laughs> well, uh, we hope you liked I hope this episode. I hope so. I sure hope so. If you so. did, you can uh, write us, review, subscribe, whatever. I don't care. Subscribe. Nobody listens to me.
3: Subscribe!
0: Follow us on Twitter, at UConn Podcast. Follow me on Twitter, at Maine underscore old, where I post old pictures and old tidbits. I will post a description of the conical plow. T- taken from some New York historical... No, not, uh, like New York Agriculture Society records from the 1870s. Cool. Julie, what, what do you want people to know?
1: Uh, if you haven't read UConn Health Journal yet, the spring issue is at healthjournal.yukon.edu And you can follow me on Twitter, at Julie Bartuca. I don't tweet very much, but... Oh, thanks, Ken, for that.
0: (laughs) That's a notification of Ken's Twitter account, right?
1: (laughs) Yeah, Ken.
2: Ken doesn't have a Twitter account. He was trying to set up some audio, and it didn't work. (laughs) Where can
0: people find you, or what do you want people to know?
2: Well, people can find me from 8.30 to 10.30 on (laughs) 91.7 WHUS and and stores, Yukon Sound Alternative on Friday mornings.
1: Mornings.
2: Yes, it's an early call this year. Morning radio is not something I've done very much.
1: You're gonna go all shock jack on us?
2: That's what I want. I want a
0: morning slot to talk about pro wrestling to the the dairy farmers well, of Eastern Canada. Well, there used to be a you heavy
2: need metal like show. A really early morning. Yeah, it yeah. used to be a morning heavy metal show. Too early for that. Too early for that. But it's never I too early. I think that's for pro why wrestling. it moved.
0: All right. Well, thanks everyone. We'll we'll uh, be back next time. That's it. That's it. I don't have